This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Nathan Seem. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of ATS Scholar, and I'm really excited to host today's scholarly podcast. We're talking about artificial intelligence in medical education. And I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Sarah Murray from UCSF, who is the senior author on a manuscript we published in ATS Scholar titled Large Language Models in Medical Education, Preparing for a Rapid Transformation in How Trainees Will Learn to Be Doctors. And then also Dr. Avi Cooper from Ohio State, who is the first author of a New England Journal of Medicine piece entitled AI in Medical Education, a 21st Century Pandora's Box. So I really appreciate both of you taking the time to, to join me today, and I'd like to ask you both to introduce yourselves with your official titles from UCSF and Ohio State, respectively. Let me go to you first, Dr. Murray. Hi there. Thank you for having me. I'm Sarah Murray, and I am the Chief Health AI Officer for UCSF Health. I also serve as Associate Chief Medical Information Officer, and i I'm in our Division of Clinical Informatics in Digital Transformation and Practice Hospital Medicine. That's great. And Dr. Cooper? Yeah, it's so great to be here on the podcast. As a, as a guest, I used to be a co-host with Scholarly, and so it's just wonderful to, to come back. My name is Avi Cooper. I am an assistant professor in practicing pulmonary and critical care medicine at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, and I have the honor and privilege of being the program director of our pulmonary critical care fellowship. I love how you got the Ohio State University in there, obvious. Very nice. Uh, you know, we have to just, we have to use the correct name. So. <laughs> it is a requirement I heard <laughs> from faculty. All right, well, let's, let's go ahead and, and get started. And Murray, I want to start with a question for you. And, and again, I think some of our listeners may be very new to this field and find it a little overwhelming. So I want to start very basic. If you could just tell us, you know, uh, broadly, what is artificial intelligence and, and what are large language models? Yeah, sure. So artificial intelligence, simply put, is the simulation of human intelligence using computer systems. And there are many different applications of AI that our listeners may be familiar with. And those range from applications of machine learning to study large data sets, speech recognition programs that we use in clinics. When I talk about AI in medicine, I usually distinguish what we call traditional AI from the newer generative AI. So prior to the release of ChatGPT, most of the use cases folks were familiar with probably fell into the category of traditional AI, and that included things like predictive models and rule-based systems. Large language models, or generative AI, are based on the transformer architecture, and transformer models have really revolutionized AI after there was this landmark paper in 2017, and they described this phenomenon called self-attention, where a model can now understand the relationship between words and language and capture meaning. So where with traditional AI, it might've been built to say, take a box of fruit and separate the apples from the oranges. With transformer models, now we can describe an apple and the model can generate a plausible image of what that is. And so likewise with text, you can give it a prompt and then it can generate a plausible response for us. 
Oh, that's great. I love that analogy. Thank you for, for breaking it down like that. That was great. And Dr. Cooper, Dr. Murray just mentioned ChatGPT, one of the newer in the, in the I guess, transformer model. Since some of us have been playing with it now and trying to trying to figure out how to how to best use this. And so can you just again at a very basic level, can you explain a bit about ChatGPT to our listeners? Yeah. So ChatGPT, you know, as Dr. Murray had said, you know, as the, when it emerged as a sort of publicly available large language model really was transformational, I think, in terms of the public consciousness of what is possible with AI and how it can honestly integrate and and affect our lives, not just in medicine. And so uh, it's a product of of OpenAI and it have different versions that are both free and paid for. And over time, it's, you know, the, the different versions starting with two, and then I think now four are, have increased in sort of fidelity and ability and reliability and are, are just, honestly, it's sort of a, a part of modern life now. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit scary. It's something even last year, many of us didn't know what that even was. So yeah, I think it's been, it's been quite a, quite a, a rapid integration into society. Javier, are there other uh, large language models that you, that you wanted to mention that you thought something that, that you, that has uptake or you see having uptake uh, like, like chat GPT does? I was just going to highlight one that I've been using. I think there are a number of ones that are out there that are sort of particularly applicable to, to healthcare workers and physicians. The one that I've started to use a little bit more is Open Evidence. And Dr. Murray, Dr. Seem, I don't know if you've used it at all, but it's a it's sort of billed as a physician-grade AI. You have to have an NPI number to use it. And it gives responses to questions and prompts that are... I'd say a little bit more perhaps measured, at least in my experience, than what ChatGPT produces. It doesn't really hallucinate to the same extent where it's giving sort of responses that are just clearly wrong. And it actually will say, it, it will give, it'll cite references pulled from PubMed of the information that it's providing. And it will actually refuse to answer questions that are outside its scope. So I have started to sort of have open evidence open on my desktop in my office. And it's been helpful to, especially when sort of answer, you know, looking looking something up, trying to get a sense of, of a literature base for something, it can be a helpful starting point. That's actually very helpful. And, and it actually makes me want to shift actually to a question for Dr. Murray that we have next, because it relates to some of the, the principles of, of trustworthy AI that the Department of Health and Human Services put forth. And, and I learned about them, Dr. Murray, from your paper in ATS Scholar. And you mentioned now, Avi, hallucinations. That's why I don't want to ask as a natural follow-up to Dr. Murray about this. And then, I, and then Avi, I'm going to come back to you for some, ask you about some papers related to AI and MedEd. But Dr. Murray, you know, it's a lot to go through, but I don't know if you can kind of give us some of the high points about those six principles of trustworthy AI uh, that the, that HHS mentions and in, in how you think think about those in, in, as you're looking at those language models. Yeah, sure. So uh, the disclaimer is that, you know, we use the HHS guidelines at UCSF. They're what we included in the paper. At this point, many organizations have actually released principles for trustworthy AI. The okay. ones I was quoting five years ago were actually the European Union ones. They were one of the first to this. And then HHS, HHS subsequently released guidelines that we now use. Honestly, they're all very similar. But the idea is that for AI to be trustworthy, it has to be robust and reliable, meaning you know, the AI systems perform as we expect them to perform. 
it needs to be fair and impartial. So our AI applications really have to be designed to ensure equity, partic particularly health equity. They have to be responsible and accountable. So it needs to be clear who is responsible for all aspects of the AI lifecycle from you know, conception of the idea and building the model to the deployment and how the model is used. Our tools need to be safe and secure. We need to make sure our data is protected. Our systems are safe from cyber attack. And along with this is privacy. We need to ensure privacy, particularly for our patients. And then finally, our AI systems need to be transparent and explainable. So it needs to be clear you know, how the AI systems are reaching their conclusions and our users need to be confident that they understand and trust the AI-driven decisions. I would say this is particularly challenging in the generative AI era because honestly, even computer scientists don't fully understand and grasp how these, how these systems are, are working and why they're producing the responses that they are. And so as we move forward, I think we have to think a little bit differently about how we evaluate these tools to ensure that we're able to carry these principles of trustworthy AI into the generative AI era. Hmm. That's a great point. And thank you for that context about the, the past guidance and how that's going to be changing. But but again, the overarching principle seems similar. You know, I, I, in my, you know, brief amount of time playing with this, I do worry that some of these principles sound more aspirational than what we're actually seeing implemented now. And I think, you know, as all of us in, in medicine, you know, kind of living through eras of, of misinformation, disinformation, we always worry about accuracy, you know, inaccurate information in medicine can kill people. And then obviously the thing that something that's, you know, we've thought a lot about recently in, in medicine, of course, is, is bias. And we've seen that in a lot of even in, in, in uh, digital media and social media. And so I was wondering as a follow-up, Dr. Murray, if you could provide any insight again, I know it, there's a, a wide range of products here in a, and, and so so, and a lot has not been clearly studied, but as you see it, as we talk about bias and accuracy, do you see specific holes when we talk about AI in medicine, but specific problems that our, our listeners, when they're utilizing these, these large language models have to be particularly wary of? Definitely. So I actually just participated in an algorithmic justice forum yesterday, and this was a major topic of discussion. Any model is only going to be as good as the underlying data. And we know our society is biased and there's evidence of bias in society and the data. And so naturally, if we use our bias data to build AI tools, we're going to see that bias in the output of our AI. And you can actually see this, you can play around with ChatGPT and see this quite easily if you give it you know, questions that are prone to gender bias, like which, you know, who is who and, asking about who a nurse is it's it's you're going to see these types of bias when when you ask chat gpt those types of questions with regards to and so that's something you know we have to be there very thoughtful about i think then the other part of this is just the accuracy and you know with regards to generative ai there's this additional concern that we have now about hallucination and that's where you know the model generates false information and it sounds very plausible and so while I think that part is actually getting better over time, it's already significantly better with GPT-4 than it was with GPT-3 and 3.5, it, it's really probably the biggest threat right now to using these tools for medical education. 
And so I think for our medical educators who are listening to this, that's something I want us to be very conscious about right now. And just a follow-up, and then I was going to ask the, uh, Dr. Cooper to chime in. So and you were mentioning that that it, each successive model, it's improving. So do you have any sort of, again, educated guesses as, as we think about th- that? Because as you say, accuracy is, is so so critical, or should we be really spending our time looking at other models that have more restricted sources rather than the, the entire you know internet? I mean, so you can read this in actually it's in Peter Lee's New England Journal paper, but already you can run a second instance of GPT-4 and it can it can check your first instance of GPT-4 for hallucination and identify it quite accurately. And when I've I've given get, used an example where I've tried to ask um, with GPT-3.5, I asked it to write me a prior authorization request for the use of a Pixaban to treat insomnia. And obviously, anyone who knows medicine knows that's ridiculous. GPT 3.5 wrote such a convincing argument that I actually went back in PubMed and made sure I hadn't missed anything, that it could be useful for insomnia. Then when I asked GPT 4 to do that, it actually scolded me and told me that would be unethical and inappropriate for me to try to write request such a prior off. And so I think we are seeing this get better very rapidly. And as we use it, we're just going to have to be very attentive to the risk associated with that given use case. And our our threshold for hallucination is going to be different depending on the use case, but it's going to get better quite quickly, I think. Hmm. All right. Well, thank thank you for that that insight. Then, yeah, I mean, let me follow up with you about that, just sort of more talking about, I don't know if there's some the issues of bias and accuracy. You mentioned you're using what open evidence more. Again, and I guess you said that's coming from a PubMed and providing references. So that seems better. You actually have some some references and you have a data set. But but that being said, we know that there's been bias in many papers in medicine. You know, we've had a lot of talk in our pulmonary critical care community about about race and PFTs and how that that got propagated for many years. So yeah, I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are be interested to hear regarding either or both of bias and uh, inaccuracy. I think it's a huge concern, like Dr. Murray was saying, in terms of just the the source data, right? So if there's systemic biases built into the way that knowledge is structured, like human knowledge is structured on the internet, and that's what it's pulling from, you know, AI is doing essentially a form of like word association and not necessarily understanding what it's doing. That really leaves us susceptible to that. And what we don't know are the downstream consequences of medical students, trainees, sort of experiencing that and, and, and then having first impressions of things that may then again be built on sort of a, a biased basis. And so I think that that is sort of, I think, a real concern. At the same time, I think AI can be, there is potential to use AI as a tool to identify biases, you know, in, in a given you know, piece of piece of writing or something like that, meaning you can actually, you know, engineer prompts. And I think people are starting to do this, engineer prompts to ask it to identify and pick out biases from, from something that you are, sh- you know, showing it. And so I think it's both sort of a threat and an opportunity at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- thank you both for, for, for walking me through that. I wanted to follow Dr. Murray. I think the the discussion about user prompts that, that Avi mentioned, I think he, you had also alluded to this before, and you know, I was listening to a, an episode, I think it was Freakonomics recently, and they're saying one of the hottest jobs out there is finding prompt engineers. So 
I didn't know what a prompt engineer was until until very recently. So, but as I understand it, the the accuracy doesn't just relate to what information the large language model is accessing, but in fact, how the user prompts the, the model. And so prompt engineers, as I understand, have special skills to do this effectively. So can you walk us through that again, as, as, as we're going to be playing and some people maybe for the first time playing with large language models, you know, how, what is this concept of user prompts and, and maybe if you have any short insight in how um, a user might navigate that to get the best information from the large language model. Yeah. So, I mean, as you said, prompt engineering is really just the process of carefully crafting your input or your question that you're asking of a tool like ChatGPT so that you elicit the desired response. So, for example, if I said, here's a clinical note, draft me patient instructions based on this clinical note, I'm going to get a lot less predictable of an output, output than if I say, draft me patient instructions based on this clinical note. Please ensure the instructions highlight the most critical follow-up issues for the patient, output the instructions in bullets, no more than 20 lines long, and write it at the 12th grade reading level, right? And so it's the process of really refining how we ask those questions. The truth is these days, all of us are going to need to be prompt engineers if we want to optimize our use of these tools. So at UCSF, we're actually in the process of creating training for this, for the use of generative AI in healthcare, so that as these tools are rolled out and they can be used more securely with healthcare data, people understand how they can more accurately craft their prompts and get the desired responses. So it's not like just a follow-up there, providing as much detail and context when you're providing the prompt at a very basic level. Obviously, there are going to be more advanced trainings and it sounds like you're already working on that. But mm -hmm. as, as people are initially playing around that, that would be the, the thought? Yeah. And, you know, people, it, you know, when folks are using a tool like this, there's the opportunity to do iterative refinement on it, right? So it can, you, it can generate an output and say, that's great. Please change the reading level to sixth grade and, mm -hmm. you know, tweak these things about it. And sometimes going through multiple iterations is the easier way to approach this. So you can get the draft, you you know, get an easy initial draft and then refine it from there with the tool. Well, I like that. Actually, that's very thought helpful. I guess maybe, you know, instead of the, like, you know, people are been in the day we're doing our Google searches, but it's it's like a conversation in effect. All right, that, that wasn't mm -hmm. quite it, but refine this in this manner and it learns from that process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the tool learns too, right? Because sometimes I'll, I'll say, why did you, why did you tell me that? And it'll say, oh, you're right. That was biased of me or you're right. That wasn't the right approach. And it'll come back and actually give me something different. So oh. it's a conversation as That's you say. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Avi, I want to go back and ask you a quick, because, you know, as we're having this conversation, you say like, this is so new, but changing so rapidly, you know, from a, from a med ed point of view, I see so many potential research questions and, and things that could be very impactful as, as we think about this tool that I'm sure, and this is going to be the sort of thing that our more junior learners are going to be using more, uh, be using in their practice sooner than our more senior faculty. So it's that awkward dynamic there. But so I was hoping, you know, as you were writing your manuscript, you did cite some of the uh, some of the seminal research findings related to AI and medical education. I was wondering if you could talk through a couple of those. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it, the the stage of the field is really, I would say, embryonic. 
and is changing so rapidly. I mean, you know, GPT is the the it's the the most rapidly uptaken platform in, in the history of the internet, right? And that's that's the level of disruption that we're dealing with and the pace of change. So I think that right now, my sense of the field is it's really more about understanding the capabilities and is really focused on sort of what, what can these large language models do. And I'll, I'll just point to a couple, of, a couple of studies there, which I think are, are really interesting and sort of highlight at least the possibilities on, on at least on the clinical reasoning front that, that exist. You know, one was a, a research letter in the New England Journal from this past August that basically looked at delayed diagnosis and input sort of information at different time points from the case and the essentially it outperformed clinicians in terms of, you know, in terms of making these diagnoses earlier, which is sort of impressive. And then, you know, related to that. So I think there are two really sort of interesting and thought-provoking papers that demonstrate the power of, of what a what AI can do from a a clinical reasoning standpoint, which I think has implications from a medical education standpoint as well, in terms of potentially using AI as a teaching tool, and to you know for in the future to potentially sort of give feedback on learners to learners on how they approach a case. And so one is they're both from JAMA. One is from August of 2023, where they used GPT-4 to essentially they analyze the medical records of patients who had delayed diagnoses to see how GPT-4 would compare to, compare to clinicians. And essentially that they found that GPT-4 did outperform, it wasn't perfect, but it outperformed clinicians in terms of sort of making these diagnoses, sort of the accuracy and the timeliness. And then also paper by actually my co-author on the New England Journal paper, Dr. Adam Rahman, who's a, a thought leader in AI and healthcare. He's a internist and hospitalist at Beth Israel Deaconess, also published in JAMA in June of 2023. They were looking at sort of the ability to solve complex cases that were from the New England Journal Clinical Pathologic Conferences. And they use GPT-4 as well. And they essentially, it, it was able to get the final diagnosis correctly in 39% of cases, which... Like if you, I mean, I, I'm definitely not at 39% when I look at those and I read those, when I read that, you know, those cases and try to figure it out myself there. And so it's, it's pretty impressive. And I think it does have implications for, you know, what a platform like G GPT or other large language models could potentially be used in curricula to give, to give, to give again, feedback to the to learners about their own clinical reasoning processes and so and how they work through cases. So I do think that is really thought provoking. Although, like I said, we're really at the embryonic stage of, I think, understanding the possibilities of large language models. But I will sort of also point to one paper from Academic Medicine in March 2023. We we also we cited in the in the New England Journal paper. It's competencies for the use of artificial intelligence-based tools by healthcare professionals. And so and granted, this was actually, they came up with these six competencies in 2021. So sort of predating the emergence of, of large language models. But I do think they're a sort of a helpful starting point for research agendas. And so they, they essentially laid out things like, you know, understanding what AI, is, what AI can do, the social and ethical implications, what it, what it means to have an AI-enhanced clinical encounter, sort of evidence the evidence basis for evaluation of, of AI tools, sort of adaptation to change that is brought on by AI and then sort of practice-based learning. And so I think that is a helpful framework for researchers to use as they sort of start to map out agendas for this really rapidly changing landscape. Okay. 
Well, yeah, thank you for, for reviewing that. And I know that the, the literature is going to evolve at a rapid rate, but thank you for providing our listeners for some of those seminal articles. And I want to go back to Dr. Murray to talk through a bit. I want to go back to, uh, in, a, in a subsequent question, talk about kind of the, the research questions we think about for the future. But I, even now, you know, when, when our listeners are going to be utilizing large language models or or be hesitant to use certain models. That discussion we had about about accuracy and bias. And I think Avi mentioned a, a large language model that that would have more limited data set as opposed to all of the world wide web. And I think in your paper in ATS Scholar, you mentioned that some large language models could u- utilize PubMed or for example, a large electronic health record. And so I don't know if you feel comfortable mentioning any particular ones that you find useful for our listeners that have a more limited set that was hopefully more accurate and less biased. And then the follow-up question to that, is there any evidence that that we, these we're making the assumption that that that's better data so there'll be less issues with bias and accuracy? And, and is there any evidence right now that those more limited sets are more, they, they perform better in these domains? Yeah. So I mean, as we've discussed, you know, the, the generative AI tools like GPT-4 are trained on the corpus of information on the internet. And that includes much of the scientific literature, but a lot of other content as well. I think it's becoming increasingly clear that we will likely want to use models that are trained on the medical literature or corpus of healthcare data more specifically as we're starting to ask generative AI tools to perform clinical tasks. So it's going to be very dependent on the task we're asking the tool to to perform as to whether we actually need that. And there are a variety of these that have been recently developed. You know, Google has MedPalm2, which is basically their Palm2 model that they then tuned for the medical domain using a panel of clinicians. Avi mentioned open evidence as a tool that he's using there's, you know, a newer tool, Site AI, and that's a tool that allows you to search the research literature with generative AI. And then there are also tools that are available now that allow you to summarize a larger corpus of information in a paper or a set of papers. I would say with regards to evidence right now, these are very difficult to study because generative AI almost never generates the exact same response twice. And so as we move forward, I think we're going to have to really think about how do we how do we study these tools? How do we, you know, other than asking it to, you know, can you get this right or not? How do we actually study whether these tools are meaningfully impacting care? And that's going to be, you know, metrics that we have for how they perform as a model, and then metrics for how they're how they're used in clinical practice as well. Well, thank you for that. Just. To clarify, I mean that 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 obviously when we talk about accuracy, if if we may ask it the same question more than one time and get a different answer, that that, that would be something that we'd say maybe it's not ready for prime time in terms of that you're you're implementing the answers at the bedside. Right. So if you ask it to say you ask it to, you know, summarize the most important things, the most important next steps for our patient. Well, you if you ask two clinicians to do that, you're going to get two different answers potentially as well, right? And so when we start looking at accuracy, yeah. it's is this plausible? Would is this in line with standard of care? It's not it's not just is this classified accurately yes or no as as it was with traditional AI. And so I think that's where these tools are a little bit different. 
Yeah, and I think it's that's a great point. And I even you know, you're talking about 39% of those the clinical cases, you know, in the journal, that's pretty damn good to, to me. But maybe there's some super master clinician out there who's you know, that in a hundred percent. And so I think as we're talking about research studies, you really have to have a gold standard there that isn't subject to provision. And that's what I think some of the papers about taking a USMLE or something, it's easier to measure, but in some ways right. less useful as we think about what we do in clinical practice, where there's a lot more gray as, as the three of us know very painfully. Um, right. So, yeah. Well, thank you for, for explaining that. And you have my head spinning as I'm thinking about all the implications. Let me go back to you, Avi, though, in terms of, so as, we, as we've been saying, I, our learners are using it at a, at a more rapid clip than many faculty. So let's ask this from the lens of all of us as practicing faculty. So what are the low-hanging fruit that we could and should be using large language models for right now as it pertains to medical education specifically? Well, I think some, some of it is just going to happen without our, without necessarily activity on our part, act, you know, active input on our part in the sense of sort of updates that platforms like Epic are doing that are really going to be sort of starting to in, incorporate this sort of technology and large language models and stuff in, in into just our day-to-day -day practice. And so I think, you know, that stuff is happening, but there's also the, you know, for, for me, again, I, I hesitate to get, be too prescriptive because I think as Dr. Murray has said, like, it just we just don't know the sort of real implications of of when we do things for 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 you know for interacting with learners and designing interventions sort of what what it means and so you know i think for um from a sort of curricular planning standpoint i think people are starting to do that i know students are definitely you know are are certainly you know using it there there's the potential to sort of anticipate questions on rounds and things like that right and so there's there, there's, I think, sort of an awareness of how it's being used by our learners that's important. But I, you know, I think there are at least I can speak to my own sort of basic sort of very you know, rudimentary uses that I, I've been doing. And so, you know, I, I've really found it helpful, like I mentioned at the outset, in terms of a starting point for sort of thinking about a complex topic and gathering, you know, different papers that I might with a prompt that I can then go to and read. So I'm still the one who's reading them, but it gives me a starting point. And I think that that can be very, very helpful and frankly, just a time saver um, and sort of angles on something that I haven't thought of, you know, with the sort of the limits of my my brain. The other sort of sort of not I guess niche use for it that I I, I have done is, you know, I, I for the podcast, I, I I look up a lot of old papers and and sort of primary sources and I Came across a paper from the 1800s in German, and I don't read German, <laughs> and so I don't speak German, and so I was able to copy and paste that paper into GPT, and it translated it for me, and it was it was just it was it was profound actually because like this paper would have been inaccessible to me, hmm. and you know is it a scholarly and it actually said, you know, this is not a, you know, a, a scholarly translation. And so it gave a disclaimer, but it allowed me to read the paper. And so I think for me, in terms of sort of knowledge acquisition, it's been, it's been very helpful. I would say the one thing I, again, I have not used it for, I have not used it to help me with writing. And I know some people are starting to do that. And I, I'm steering clear of that. I think I have my own authorial voice and I, uh, I'm sticking to that. 
wanted to thank you for that, that idea. Wanted to follow up with Sarah about the, the question, something that is maybe not, it's not education per se, but it really, you know, one of the, the, the issues of our time, certainly in medicine is burnout. And in, in the paper you wrote for us in ATS Scholar, Dr. Murray, you talked about how large language models can improve efficiency in some of the mundane tasks. Maybe that can help us practice to the top of our license as opposed to some of the painful things we have to do. So even just thinking about it on the clinician side for a clinician educator, what, do you have recommendations for one or two things that, that a clinician educator should think about using uh, large language models for in their daily practice, say, you know, uh, in 2024? Yeah, so I think, so Eric Topol coined this term keyboard liberation. And I think that's what we're going to see happening over the next one to two years as we start implementing these tools in health systems to do some of these mundane tasks for folks. And I, I'm not suggesting that people should, you know, copy paste into chat GPT. That's not actually a secure thing to do, but health systems will start implementing secure systems to help you with your prior authorization, your work letters, your medical leave requests, those types of things that people spend a lot of time doing in clinic, I think we'll be able to, we'll see that quite quickly available as tools for folks. And then, you know, AI scribes, AI assistants, we're going to see those implemented in clinical practice over the next one to two years as well, which is going to provide a fair amount of keyboard liberation. I'd say as a, as an educator, one thing you can use this for right now is a it is chat gpt and gpt4 specifically is a very good drafting tool many people i know already use it to outline talks i wouldn't have it write the talk for me but to give me a framework it actually helps you kind of just get over that activation energy of getting started that i think many of us sometimes struggle with and and then you have the expertise to edit it and refine all of the content and then the other thing I would say is that right now as a clinician educator, I use it as an educational piece in and of itself. So this is a technology. It's not entirely ready for prime time, but let's imagine with our learners a future of what our life's going to look like in five to 10 years with this these tools practicing at our side. And so I think that conversation is actually very educational for our learners as well. And they have a lot of thoughts about how that should play out. So. Yeah, I love that because, you know, I think in medicine, we always think about, I always think about what did we do 10 years ago or 20 years ago? That was, we look back and like, well, why did we do that? Right. And I think you see, we clearly are going to be doing things differently in that period of time. So engaging your learners in that, in that thought experience, that, that, that experiment, that's great. I wanted to wrap up the podcast, the question for both of you. And I think we've talked a little bit about it. So the, the, you know, the, I worry certainly as we think about, as you both have said, these these models are evolving so rapidly. So we need to figure out the gaps. These are there are opportunities for research questions to answer. But has the the large language model already figured it out and resolved the the problem we identify in the in the next version? So you know I think there still are great opportunities for research in this space, and I'd like to ask both of you. Maybe Avi, I ask you to start. Could you give me if you thought about I want to send this out to the the masses of our listeners, and we have a lot of people who work on education scholarship, right? So what do you think of one to two research questions that are questions that you worry about or think about that you would like to be addressed regarding AI and medicine? I think this space is really ripe for 
qualitative research to understand how trainees, especially those who are what we're going to sort of consider to be AI natives, meaning they're coming into medicine already having experienced AI and have it be a part of their lives even before they get to medical school, understanding how that is affecting their their thought structures and their thought processes. And, you know, if we think about, you know, you can sort of stretch this sort of the meaning of this disruption, even back to, you know, Lenech in the 1800s and the stethoscope. When you think about how much that innovation changed the way that physicians think about their patients and examination and the ability to, to, to use tools to practice medicine. And this is going to be more disruptive than that, probably, because it's never been so easy to have knowledge handed to you and to learn. And so I, I think that is probably the most pressing question. And I think the challenge is we're, we're, there's a lot of focus on like the, the, the short term and maybe the medium term and sort of understanding like how we're integrating it into our lives and how do we sort of layer it on the things we're already doing and what are the, what are those implications? But I'm, I'm particularly interested in maybe worried is a strong word, but I'm, 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 I, I think the bigger issue, and I hope that there's qualitative research in this is how is it changing the way that physicians, phys, you know, trainees think, because I think that is, that's probably the most pressing question before us in healthcare. Yeah. Clinical reasoning is obviously everything. So it's a great point. Sarah, what are, you, what are your thoughts? Any ideas here? Yeah. So my role as chief health AI officer is really focused on improving care delivery in our health system. And so I always go back to my soapbox on this one, which is what is the problem we are trying to solve? In that vein, I'm hyper-focused on testing various use cases and seeing if they're really ready to start improving care delivery rather than focusing on studying the AI itself. So can we use AI to solve in generative AI to solve triaging of patient messaging, which takes a lot of time? Can we reliably use AI scribes to draft clinical notes and do that without bias against our patients who have limited English proficiency? And so those are the types of questions I think about every day. If there's one area where I do think we need to devote a lot of research, it's you know moving beyond our initial evaluation of trustworthiness. We haven't really figured out how we're going to longitudinally monitor and maintain these tools and ensure ongoing trustworthiness and ongoing impact. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for us in healthcare to partner with our research community and really put into place systems that will do that effectively. That's a great point. I didn't even think of that. So, you know, I love how you frame that. Can you use AI to do X and then study that? And then if you're actually implementing it, you're going to have to keep checking that it's reliably doing X once you've established that that, that indication. No, that's fantastic. All right. So I think this has been a great conversation and I really appreciate both of you contributing to it and, and, and giving us your, your expertise for a little less than an hour. So, and I want to thank our listeners for, for listening to today's, today's podcast, as well as hopefully earlier episodes of Scholarly. And if you want to be the first to hear when new Scholarly episodes are posted, please subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. You can search 
iTunes for American Thoracic Society, and Fine Scholarly. And of course, please read ATS Dollar on the ATS Journal's website. You can read Dr. Murray's excellent paper on large angled models. And of course, you can go to the New England Journal website if you choose and look at Dr. Cooper's perspective on the Pandora's box. So again, thank you, Avi. Thank you, Sarah. This has been a fantastic conversation.